Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for an awesome first session. And now as we proceed to the second session, we pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us. Thank you, Jesus, for all your goodness, for all your kindness to us. Thank you for bringing us here to be able to learn and to experience more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. The first session, we dealt with apologetics. And apologetics, the word, is apologia, which means a defense or a, a sort of a, a defense that takes place in the court of the things that you believe in, right? A clear and precise defense of the things that you believe in. We looked at many examples that these aren't just original SDA beliefs, but we learned that there are many scholars, from John Stott to even C.S. Lewis, who questioned the eternal burning hellfire teaching. And uh, if you're part of the last seminar, I just want to say this. The reason why it's extremely important to present what we believe when it comes to our teaching about hellfire is because the world right now has a misconception about God. I mean, think about it. Even the devil himself probably would not burn people for all of eternity. He himself shudders at the results of his own mistakes. But yet he has placed an image so diabolical, so wicked, so ugly over the character of God that when people look at God, they run, they shudder. And this is why it's extremely important to understand this. So if you missed the first session, you can listen to the audio recording. You can talk to somebody who went there. But this is very interesting. I want to share this experience. It happened at the last evangelistic series I was preaching. I was preaching on the weekend where I dealt with the state of the dead and I dealt with the uh, hellfire, our teaching about hellfire, annihilation. And I was preaching and I was so, I was deathly sick. I mean, I was just like, I can't get up. I'm just out of it. And it just hit me. And I don't get sick. But when Nell Candy gets sick, I mean, I get sick. I get bad. I mean, it's just like Ebola virus on Nell. And so... When I, uh, I got sick, the, the, I had people praying, some people did hydrotherapy, I got better. And as I began to preach, the Spirit came upon me, and I preached, I mean, I never probably preached a clear and a greater presentation about the state of the dead and about uh, our teachings about hellfire. But you know what's very interesting? That same weekend, the pastor of the local mega church had a vision. That same weekend, he had a vision. And I found out this by one of the church members. He had this vision where he was taken to hell. He was taken to the center of the earth and he was brought before all these people who were burning and they were moaning and they were just screaming as they were being burned. And he came out of it and he told his congregation that Sunday morning, he said, I saw hell last night. And I want to tell you right now, there are people who are burning there. And God is, is, is tormenting them because of their sins. Do you see the great controversy here? At the same weekend that I was presenting that, Folks, I want you to understand something. When you present the truth as it is in Jesus, the devil starts targeting. But we need to know the truth. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right. The name of the seminar is called Questioning the Questioner, Disarming Pharisees and Sadducees. Questioning the Questioner, Disarming Pharisees and Sadducees. This is session two, August 12, 2011. The conference is called Aisha. This is for the recording. And so watch what Ellen White says right here. In the Southern Watchman, September 12, 1905, there are many cases where men who have defended Christianity against skeptics have afterward lost their own souls in the mazes of skepticism. They caught the malaria and died spiritually. And by the way, last session we learned about one individual like this. And what was his name? Brother Hall, right? Moses Hall, considered probably the, the, one of the best Adventist apologists, was debating spiritualists, utterly destroying them in the debates. He himself fell away and became a spiritualist. The reason why? Because he would not spend that hour in Jesus. We need to spend an hour a day regardless of what we're studying. Amen? 
Amen. By the way, you know, I was doing an apologetic seminar with one of my other friends, Brian Simmons, and as we were presenting it, we had done a lot of study with, uh, we went, we visited uh, imams, we visited Buddhist priests, we talked to a lot of these people from different religions, Hindu um, philosophers, and as we were talking to them, it was so easy just to feel sort of the, uh, the influence that they were presenting. And I was prayerful during those times, and I was like, Jesus, keep me close to you. Just keep me close to you. I never forgot when I was talking to the, the Buddhist priest. I mean, she was just, she was like, I can see in your eyes right now. You're tired. And you need the rest that comes in Buddhism. And I was just like, I just blinked and I was like, all right, <laughs> you know, I need to get going right now. <laughs> you know, but you, you see what I'm saying? It's like, we need to be very careful. and We need to spend that hour with Jesus each and every day, regardless of what we're studying. Amen. Otherwise, we can be influenced by the world. But watch what she says right here. They have strong arguments for the truth and much outside evidence, but they did not have an abiding faith in Christ. If you're going to study apologetics, one hour a day with Jesus. Amen. Oh, there are thousands upon thousands of professed Christians who never study the Bible. Study the sacred word prayerfully for your own soul's benefit. This is extremely important when it comes to teaching apologetics, that we teach this truth above any other truth, that an hour a day with Jesus, not just studying, but lingering in His presence. Amen? Lingering in His presence. All right. When it comes to people, when it comes to engaging society, we can sometimes sit with people at Starbucks, have a, have a uh, soy milk steamer, or we can go down to, uh, you know, in various classrooms. If you've ever taken a class on philosophy or religion, not found in our Seventh-day Adventist institutions, but found in other institutions, you will often find there are sometimes people who are very antagonistic towards the very things that you believe in. And many times it can be very difficult when you're trying to share, and you can't think at that very moment what to say. You ever been in a situation like that? All the time, amen? You know you've been in that situation, right? You don't know what to say at that very moment when someone says something, something, right? But what we're going to be doing today, we're going to be going over some principles of what to do when you're in situations like that. How do you share with somebody who's very antagonistic, who's throwing all these questions, not in an attitude of genuine search and desire, but an attitude of genuine skepticism? How do you deal with them in a productive and constructive way? Oftentimes, in our discussions and our witnessing, it can move from a time when there is just good dialogue to a time when something is said, a certain psychological uh, prick takes place, and all of a sudden the person becomes very angry, very enraged, and they begin to show all these questions. We're going to find out how Jesus dealt with this issue. Last, time we, uh, last session, we learned about somebody who, who asked a question in the uh, philosophy class, can God make a mountain so big that he himself can't move it? You want to know the answer to it, listen to the recording. What do you do when these things happen? Everyone take your Bible. We're going to go to a time where Jesus actually dealt with skeptics, where he actually dealt with Pharisees and Sadducees who were confused even about the things that they believed in. We're going to Luke chapter 2. Take your Bible there. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. And we're going to start with verse 40. How did Jesus deal with people who were antagonistic towards what he believed in? Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And watch what the Bible says right here. And the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the what? Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went to the Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now watch what the Bible says about Jesus. Don't forget this point, okay? Watch what it says. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, right? Spiritually, Jesus was growing. 
He was filled with wisdom. Mentally, Jesus was growing. And the grace of God was upon him. His relationship with God was flourishing. Notice these three characteristics that are said about Jesus prior to this time. Do not forget it. Okay? So what are the three characteristics said about Jesus during this time? Strong in spirit. Filled with wisdom. And what's the third thing? The grace of God was upon him, right? And every year his parents went to the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Ellen White says in the book Desire of Ages in a chapter called um, The Passover Visit, she says that when Jesus showed up at the temple and saw all the various sacrifices taking place, she said his mind began figuring out a great problem. Prior to this time, he did not have the information that pointed to him that he was the Savior. It was as he was figuring out this information that all of it began to coalesce and converge upon one central point, And the Spirit of God was speaking to Jesus as a young boy and said, You are the chosen one. You are the chosen one. And when everything began to make sense, his birth and all the scriptures that he'd been studying, the Spirit was showing him very clearly that he was the Messiah. This is where Jesus began to realize his messianic identity. And this is where he began to engage the population. Well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 43, And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to be in a day, been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among many acquaintances, among their kinsfolks. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. They go back, you can imagine Mary and Joseph mourning over their, their, their mistake, and as they're looking around everywhere, probably their other children are looking around, they finally found Jesus. Look what it says in verse 46. And it came to pass after three days, they found him where? In the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors. What? These are not medical doctors. What type of doctors are they? They are spiritual doctors, doctors of the law. Both hearing them and what? Asking them questions. And all that heard it were astonished at his understanding and his answers. They show up and they see the boy Jesus and there he is. He's in the midst of all these teachers and he's asking questions and these questions, Ellen White says, were leading the minds of the Pharisees and Sadducees to the truth. And she said, had they followed the veins of truth that were given by Jesus as a young boy, it would have worked a great reformation just from that one conversation. Now Jesus was there as a young boy. Notice how he's engaging these teachers that full of these pride. These are bearded men. You don't talk down to them. You don't give them answers. You give them questions. You know, in the Indian culture, you go in and you see someone who is older. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go down there and touch their feet as a sign of respect. It's showing that you are the, uh, that individual is the superior, he's older. And so in the Eastern culture, it was, you don't, when it comes to those who are teachers, those who are professionals, there's great respect given to them. So Jesus was dealing with them, but he did not arouse their prejudices. They saw a young boy who was very inquisitive. And they had dealt with other young boys, teaching them to memorize scriptures. But when it came to Jesus as a young boy, you can just imagine this. They saw this, this brilliant mind, this original mind, and he himself was leading them, though, in their questions. Now watch what happens next. Watch what happens next. Verse 48. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said to them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And by the way, when you continue reading about it now, you find out that when it comes to... Um, uh, what his father, it doesn't say his, just his father. Now it says Joseph and his mother. He was now acknowledging the ties to his heavenly father. 
Now watch what happens in verse 51. And he went down to them, came to Nazareth, and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Now watch verse 52. And he increased in wisdom, stature, in favor with God, and? And man now. What are you noticing here? What is the difference? When Jesus, prior to this coming to this, and now after, the, after this experience, what's now happening to Jesus? What is he now learning to do? He's learning how to gauge people. Prior to this time, he dealt with people. You can read about this. And when, as a child, in the days of conflict, he would engage with them in a certain way. And his character of love was clearly shown. But now he was growing, after this experience, in favor with men. He was learning how to engage people now with the truth found in God. Prior to this time, it was a different way that he worked with men. But now he was leading to a clearer perception of who God is. And folks, I want you to understand something. From this time and from then on, Jesus went about witnessing. He began to encourage. You found in his ministry that when he would work with people, oftentimes he would ask questions. He'd ask questions. And by the way, if you want this, come to me afterwards. I actually have a document that has over 100 questions that Jesus asked in his entire ministry. You're saying Jesus actually asked 100 questions? He asked more than 100 questions. I have it all down on a piece of paper. So if you want that, you come talk to me, and I'll try to email it to you, okay? But Jesus asked over 100 questions. When it comes to teaching, when it comes to understanding, questions are very good. Can you say amen to that? And by the way, you know this between you go to a good Sabbath school and a bad Sabbath school. When you go to the good Sabbath school, the teacher is asking what? questions. She's, he or she is trying to engage, right? Uh, someone who is probably not that great of a teacher, somebody who's just asking, not asking questions, but just simply giving answers. By the way, did you know that the word education comes from the Latin word educare? You know what it means? To educate? To draw them out. To draw them out. Jesus was the master educator. Can you say amen to that? He knew how to draw men out, even to those who were more antagonistic towards him. He still knew how to draw them out. And Jesus would take the sort of a, the system of asking questions to even the questioner. You can read all about it throughout all the Gospels. So why did Jesus ask the question? Why did he give these type of reply? Number one, he revealed his divinity as the Savior by these heart-searching questions. When people would ask him questions, he would turn around and say, let me ask you a question. What saith the law? How readest thou? Right? Then he would expose assumptions held by the questioner, showed the questioner the fallacies of their beliefs. He pointed out prejudices and avoided possible accusation. Can you think of a time where Jesus actually asked a question and pointed out a prejudice that existed? Think about a parable. The Good Samaritan parable. What did Jesus ask at the very end of that Good Samaritan parable? Who is the neighbor and how did the man reply? The one who showed him mercy. The man wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. And Jesus was bringing him to that conclusion. So the man would acknowledge, I have a problem here. He led the questioner to obvious conclusions on their own, thus leading them to be responsible for the answers. Right? Remember that time that they were trying to kill him? Jesus gives a parable about the vineyard, and he says, What will the king do to all those who, who killed his son and to, who persecuted all his servants? What will he do to all those wicked servants? And how did the Pharisees and Sadducees reply? He will miserably destroy them, right? And what does the Bible say? And the Pharisees and Sadducees realized he was talking about them. Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus had a variety of reasons why he asked questions. But when it comes to this, ultimately, he led the hearer for this, to yearn for more. 
when they saw the wisdom being executed by Jesus, when they saw these answers that were, that were, so, that were not even accusing of the individual asking the questions, even dealing with their motives, the person would yearn for more and said, I have to know more. In fact, you know what the Bible says in the book of Acts? That many of these priests actually became converted later on as a result of these things. So Jesus knew how to engage people by questions, by questions. All right. I'm going to ask you guys a question right now. And I don't want you to tell me an answer. I want you to tell me a question. Okay? And the way we deal with questions is we reply with another question. And Seventh-day Adventism, we are very good at giving answers. We're really good at giving answers. But I don't want you to give me an answer. I want you to give me a question. Now, oftentimes questions can be asked that are no-win win, no win questions. You know what a no-win question is? You're not going to win, no matter what you say, right? And these were questions that were asked to Jesus. Okay? Now, a question that I was sometimes asked when I was younger was this. Does your mother know you are pregnant? Why would someone ask me that question? <laughs> well, it was designed to uh, make me look foolish, right? Does your mother know that you are pregnant? Now, what if I was to say yes? That would be bad. What if I was to say no? I'm still acknowledging that I'm pregnant, right? But I just haven't told anybody about it, right? <laughs> So oftentimes we are asked questions and we need to respond and we need to learn to ask a counter question. Not just answers. We're very good at giving answers, but I want you to learn how to give questions. So we're going to do some thinking right here. I'm going to give you some examples of this and I'm going to put the test upon you. So you better be ready, okay? In giving a question to the questioner, you are trying to understand the agenda that's behind the question and at the same time trying to lead the person to a greater understanding of how, of what the truth is, okay? So when someone says, does your mother know you are pregnant? This is just an example. This is just for fun. Counter question. Do your friends know that you like to ambush people with intentionally misleading questions? <laughs> does so-and-so know that you like them? If I was to say yes, that would acknowledge, yes, they do know that I like them. If I was to say no, that still is acknowledging that I like them, right? So you see, it's kind of a, a no-win-win question right here. So... Counter question, do you think you are good at setting people up? Okay. Should people be permitted to carry and own weapons in this day and age? What would be a good counter question to this? All right, thought about this. Counter question, do you think it was a safe time when the Constitution and the Second Amendment was written? How about this one? Do you think the authorities should be tough on domestic terrorism? Do you believe that the innocent are, 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 do you believe that innocent, do you believe in that principle that innocent until proven guilty is still valid? Folks, when you're getting right down to it, now these are just sort of simple questions, but I'm going to be testing you right now, and I don't want you to give me answers. I want you to give me questions. Are you ready for this? Okay, here we go. I'm going to start engaging right there. Uh, women, do you notice anything different about me? Why is that a no-win-win question? Because if you say no... They're going to feel insulted, but if you say yes, uh, oftentimes they're going to say, what? And you're going to be like, <laughs> looking around and staring. Your hair. Always go for the hair. That's the first thing, right? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. You ready now? I'm going to give you, I want you to answer with me, answer some, give me, not with an answer, but with a question. Okay. Here we go. If God is so good, why is there evil in this world? How would you answer that with a question? If God is so good, why is there evil in this world? I want you to answer with a question, not with an answer. Although your answer can be found in the question. Come on. 
Who is responsible for evil? Okay, very good question. Very good. Anybody else? If God, what is it? What is evil? Very good. You're leading them to moral objectives. Okay, very good. Anybody else? Why are you blaming God? Okay, very good. Anybody else? Would you acknowledge that God exists? Okay, very good. Did God create evil? Okay, very good. Okay, how about this one? Why do I have to keep the law when I have a relationship with Jesus? How would you answer that with a question? Who came up with the law? Let me ask you a question. Who wrote the law? Very good. How about that? Yes? Does Satan have a relationship with Jesus? Okay, how about you, Jessica? Did Jesus keep the law? And by the way, one time I was talking to this lady, and it was very hilarious. Me and my friend um, were, were trying to witness, and he's the one that usually engages people quickly. And so he was engaging this people that was at this Chinese restaurant. He was talking to them, and as he was talking with them, they started, I can sense there was a debate taking place over there, and I was like, all right, Nell's going to step over there. And so I stepped over there. I stepped over there, and I was like, so what are you guys talking about? And they were just like, well, your friend here is trying to show us about the Seventh-day Sabbath. And I said, really? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's very biblical. And then one of them pointed to her friends, like, you don't want Big Mama to come out with her Bible. And I said, Big Mama? And she's like, yeah, that's Big Mama right there. <laughs> and she's like, you don't want her to come out with her Bible. I'm like, bring it on. And so Big Mama opened up her Bible, and she's like, you're going to have to show me from Scripture. I study my Bible about the seventh day, about what, what it teaches. You show me from the Bible where the Bible shows that the seventh day is the Sabbath. And I was like, all right. And I went through it, and I presented. And then she, she kept interrupting me. She was saying things like, wait a second. That's Old Testament. We don't believe in Old Testament. I said, you don't believe in Old Testament. I said, what Scriptures did Jesus use? And she was quiet. And then she moved on. And then I was showing her from how Jesus kept the Sabbath. And she said, well, Jesus didn't keep the law. I said, Jesus didn't keep the law. I said, well, let me take you to John chapter 15. To go to John chapter 15 where Jesus said, I have kept my father's commandments. I said, what is the verse saying? And she looked up and she said, you know what it's saying. I said, that's exactly right. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. All right. What does it have to do with this? I have no clue. Okay. If God is the God of love, why did he command the slaughter of thousands in the Old Testament? Give me a question, a good question. Don't just give me an answer. I can give you several reasons why I believe that God did not commit genocide in the Bible. I'm very good at that. I can give you several reasons. But I need from you a question from somebody who is just very antagonistic right now and said, if God is a God of love, pay attention to the assumptions that are in the question. Why did he command the, the destruction of thousands? Someone who hasn't raised their hand yet. He did command it. Yes. Oh, very good, very good. Brother, what's your name? Trey. Meal ticket. Okay, what is it? Meal ticket. What's your name? Okay, Trey. <laughs> it's not meal ticket, it said meal ticket. Okay. I was just kidding. Okay, Trey said, what is love? What is love? Now, why is that a question that would be powerful? Because love does not expunge justice from it. Like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in iniquity. This is very important to understand. This is very important to understand. Folks, we're, we're throwing these questions every day, whether we're in, in like a Starbucks corner or whether we're in uh, a classroom. People are asking these philosophical questions and they want to know answers. And the best way you can give an answer without having them just jump on you and give you all these reasons is to lead their mind through the use of questions. 
See what are the assumptions found in the question itself and give a response. All right, do I have to be SDA to be saved? Don't give me an answer, give me a question. Well, you're arguing in favor that it is important to be an SDA. Do I have to do anything to be saved? Okay, very good. What does it mean to be saved? Yeah, someone say, well, to be saved means to accept the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, Jesus died for you. Well, that's the what of salvation, but the how of salvation is the question that needs to be asked. Let me ask you a question. How is salvation ultimately obtained? Well, it's accepting the blood of Jesus. That's it? Yeah, what is following Jesus all about? This is very important. Okay, how about this one? Do I have to be vegetarian to get into heaven? What are you going to eat in heaven, right? That's exactly right. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, somebody else. What Do I have to be a vegetarian to be in heaven? And by the way, you will not just get these answers from skeptics. You will get it from Seventh-day Adventists themselves. You go to a Sabbath school lesson that's led by some, not to say that all of them are like this, but you go to them in the main sanctuary, you will often find people, Seventh-day Adventists, homegrown, who are doubting uh, the message. And it's very important to deal with these things. Very important. What do I have to do to go to heaven? Okay, anybody else? How would you answer this question? Do I have to be a vegetarian to be heaven? They sort of say it like in a, a, a sort of a, a way that's just designed to be pointy and sharp. You know, do I have to be a vegetarian? Do I have to be? Yes? Yes, how does diet affect my behavior? Does diet affect my behavior? Okay, very good. What do I have? Why do I have to read E.G. White when I have the Bible? Why do I have to read E.G. White when I have the Bible? You're telling me I need to study these rights. Why do I have to read it? I got the Bible. Do you understand your Bible? Okay, very good. Okay. The, does the Bible teach us that we should believe in the prophets and we shall prosper? Very good. Anybody else want to take a shot at this? Okay, very good. I want you to think about this, folks. You need to learn to reply with questions more. We've lost the art of asking questions. We're very good at giving answers. And this is very important because when you're giving a Bible study, if you know how to ask right questions, you'll get, to, you'll get right answers. Not just the answer is Jesus, right? No, it's to take him deeper. He is the reason, but there's more to that. Amen? Amen. All right. Atheism. Atheism. Now we're dealing with some questions that, that need to be asked when these things are being presented. You know, Ravi Zacharias, he talks about this in his book called Beyond Opinion in the chapter called Apologetics About Apologetics, and he says this. Here's a question that needs to be answered in a scientific class, science class where the teacher is antagonistic towards religion. Is theism science? Is theism science? Yes and no. What is science? What is science? Okay. All right. Atheism. Why is there something rather than nothing? The question was asked by Aristotle and Leibniz alike, albeit with different answers. But it is a historic concern. Why is there conscience, intelligent life on this planet, and there is any meaning to this life? If there is any meaning, what kind of meaning and how is it found? Does human history lead anywhere, or is it all vain since death is merely the end? And if you are content with atheism, what circumstances would serve to make you open to other answers? So you see these questions. I want you to write down the ones, if you're taking notes, the ones that are highlighted, okay? The second one, why, if we reject the existence of God, we are left with the crisis of meaning. 
And so why don't we see more atheists like Jean-Paul Sartre and Friedrich Nietzsche? By the way, Friedrich Nietzsche was somebody who followed what he believed in to its logical conclusion. He was somebody who was called the, the pallbearer of atheism. And do you know that, or pallbearer of God, and do you know what, he, what happened to him at the end of his life? He spent the last 10 years of his life as a syphilitic in a madhouse, screaming out for God. This is somebody who promoted atheism and said, you know what, I don't believe in God, God is dead, and he followed it to his logical conclusions, and you know what happened? His life ended in insanity. When people have embraced atheism, aren't historical results horrific? This is tied into the second question, as in the regimes of Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot, who saw religion as the problem and worked to eradicate it. Now, when people send to you, they say, religion has caused the death of millions. Bible-believing Christians have caused the death of thousands. What would you respond? How would you respond to that? Yes, Jessica. And one thing that's important to state, too, is that Christianity, biblical Christianity, does not lead to these conclusions. It does not lead to these conclusions. But if you were to take atheism and get rid of all moral objectives, you know what, people? In other words, they say this. If Darwin was right, then Hitler wasn't wrong. If Darwin was right, then Hitler wasn't wrong. Because when, when evolutionarism, um, atheism is being propounded and there is no more values, there's no more value on human life. Yeah, there's no difference between Mother Teresa and, um, you know, Hitler. And this is very important to us to understand because I really believe Christian apologists are starting to breach onto Seventh-day Adventism here. They're starting to understand that there is a moral law that you can't escape. However, they're stopping right there. But if they were to go a step further, they would find that that moral law is the Ten Commandments. Folks, the entire world is on the breach of Seventh-day Adventists. We need to make sure that we know what the Bible teaches. If there is no God, the problems of evil and suffering are in no way solved. So where is the hope of redemption or meaning for those who suffer? You know, I watched this debate by uh, Christopher Hitchens, and you know what he said about life? He said, life, we are born into this life in a, 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 a downward struggle, and we're going to die this way. We're going to die this way. And by the way, he also said this. He said, if I went to heaven right now, it'd be like hell for me. If God takes me, if there was such thing as God, and he took me to heaven, it'd be like hell to me. You know who also said that? Ellen White did in the book Steps to Christ. She said, if God was to take people right now and place them in heaven, it'd be like hell to them. They'd run from the presence of God. Why? I asked, somebody asked me, go ahead. They don't want to be there. And by the way, what's the Lord's Prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, what? Thy kingdom come, thy? On, wait, where? So heaven is a place where what? God's will is being done. So if you don't learn to follow God's will now, how you'll follow it in heaven? Does that make sense? Okay, very good. How do we explain human questions for meaning and purpose or inner thoughts like, why do I feel so unfulfilled or empty? The entire world cannot deny this, that this is something very legitimate. Animals don't feel emptiness, do they? They don't, but human beings do. There's a hunger and thirst that no one will deny. You know, one day I was dealing with this woman who was a Hindu. I was flying on a plane. And, uh, you know, I always, like, when I fly on a plane, when I'm coming back from, like, a mission trip, I like just to sleep and just veg out and just not talk to people. But the Lord always is very good about making sure that that doesn't happen to me. And so I was placed next to this lady, and she was a Hindu lady. And the inevitable question that comes up when you're talking to an Indian is this. What do you do for a profession? Because they gauge your status by what you do in, in, in your employment. And so when I'm stating I'm a pastor, oftentimes there's an awkward silence that takes place. And so they'll be saying, so, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm a computer technician. I work for HP in India. And then I'll say, they say, what do you do? And I'm like, 
I'm a pastor. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> you know, there's this, this, this awkwardness that takes place. You're a pastor? Well, I was talking to this woman. She was a Hindu. And I began talking to her. And she said, you know, so you believe in the Bible? And I go, I believe in the Bible. It's true. You look at it. All the evidences are there. I said, have you ever studied out the scriptures? And she said, no. Then I said, you've got to try this out. If you're experiencing emptiness, and by the way, India is a culture that's known for its Bollywood media, right? You know what you will find in Bollywood that's pretty consistent, besides dancing and singing and choreographed <laughs> movement? Love story? Rags to riches. And you will see people who are living in huts, who have a TV, who watch Bollywood movies all day. I grew up, my mom watches Bollywood because there's so much emptiness in the world. It's substituted by placing these movies where people who have horrible beginnings and rising out of that. Folks, I want you to understand our world is empty right now. But Jesus can fill it. Amen? We have the water of life. All right. Now we're going to get to creationism. All right. This is very good. If dinosaurs lived and died a thousand years before Adam, how do we explain Romans chapter 5? You know, one day I went inside this non-denominational church, very big, and I was looking on the wall, and you know what I saw? I saw this poster, and it had three different views of life. One was evolution, and they had the sort of the, the, uh, the goo from the zoo to you, and then they had... Uh, they had God creating the world in thousands of years, and then eventually man came to being, theistic evolution. And then they had uh, God creating the world in six days. And I was just looking at the poster. I just walked in, okay? Indian guy just walks in, and you would think, okay, he's a convert. He's, I'm going to convert this guy. And so the head elder of that non-denominational church comes up to me. And he said, you ever been to this church? I go, I've never been to this church before. And he says, wow, that's interesting. He says, you're looking at a poster about creationism. Do you know that? And I said, yeah. I do. And uh, he didn't know I was a pastor. And so he began talking to me. And so I just played dumb. That's very important. And so <laughs> I was playing dumb. And this is, this is God really led in this, okay? He began talking about this. He said, yeah, people have these different views about creationism. This group believes that there is no God, that, you know, that this world just came about as chance. And then there's a second view that God used long ages to cre and eventually created man. And then there's this view that God created the world in six days. He says, I don't really believe in the third view or the first view. I believe in the second view. You look at all the evidences of science and all these things. And, you know, here's the head elder of a church. And here's this Indian guy, young kid. And, you know, this was a few years ago because I was younger back then. And so you don't want to arouse the prejudices. So I said, I'm going to ask a question. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, if dinosaurs lived and died thousands of years ago before there was a single man, before God created Adam, I said, how would you explain the verse in Romans chapter 5 that said, by one man's sin, death came upon this world? And he, I never forgot the moment. He looked right at the poster, and he looked right at me, and he said, I've never thought of it like this. Well, duh! <laughs> but here's the thing. If I was to tell him, no, you're wrong, let me give you all the reasons why you're wrong, you know what happened? All his prejudices would have been aroused, and he said, I'm not going to listen to you. But I thought to deal with it in a way that would not, that would disarm him. Questions said in the meekness and fear of the Lord will open up understanding. Can you say amen to that? Amen. If Genesis is figurative, then the fall of man is figurative. How about salvation? Because if we say the first two chapters of Genesis, oh, that's symbolic, that's figurative, then we can, so we can also say that the first messianic prophecy found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is also figurative too. Where do we determine, determine the line of demarcation? 
How about this question? The Bible says God is good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God describes his just finished creation as very good. How do you understand the goodness of God if he used everything in, he used evolution, nature, red in tooth and claw? That's a common quote found in evolution that God used, or that the world evolution is just basically the product of uh, uh, survival of the fittest, that those kill to get on top, right? But the Bible makes it very clear that everything he created was very what? Good. And that's the question that also needs to be addressed too. If the first five books were not written by him, then who wrote the Ten Commandments? One of my friends, he's a biology teacher. He teaches creationism. And he went to one of our universities. And he found a certain professor who was teaching something that was contrary. And, and in a certain department we'll call science. And so, anyways, he went there. And the, the teacher, the, the professor was talking about all these reasons why he didn't believe that the first five books of Moses were written by Moses, even though it said these were written by Moses. And he says, well, scholars think these days that Moses, you know, you know uh, it could have been written by different people and this person later on. And so we don't know if this is actually written by Moses. The biology teacher said, can I ask you one question? He said, yeah. But who wrote the Ten Commandments? Well, God did with his own finger. What does the fourth commandment state? In six days, God created the heavens and earth. And the man said, that's a good answer. Folks, I want you, does that make sense? Are we understanding the question here, yes or no? Even if men deny the first five books of Moses, the Ten Commandments still stand. And in the fourth commandment, it's very implicit about the creation account, that God did it in six days. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right. If God created over millions of years involving death, then the existing earth is not ruined by sin, but is as it always has been, as God supposedly intended it to be. So why then would he want to destroy it and create a new heavens and new earth? Does that make sense, yes or no? Okay, very good. As I understand, there is no purpose, no direction, no goal in evolution. The God of the Bible is all about purpose. How do you reconcile the purposelessness of evolution with the purpose of God? And what does God have to do in an evolutionary world? Is not God an unnecessary hypothesis? You see all these questions that need to be raised wherever we're at. And when you take a good look at these questions, it opens up the assumptions that lie within. Are we understanding everything? Yes or no? By the way, this is a well-known Jehovah Witness doctrine. We have nine minutes and 37 seconds. Okay. Um, this is a well-known Jehovah Witness doctrine that the world was actually created in 6,000 years, and so these are not actual literal days. Now, what would be the question we can ask about that? What does the word as mean? Okay, very good. Anybody else? Okay, very good. That is the key right there. That is the key. What day was the sun created? The sun was created later on in the week. What was used to support the plant life that existed prior to that time? And also what's very important is to understand the uh, meanings, the, actually the Hebrew meanings of day and year, uh, day of a week. Uh, there's a book right now, it came out by our, the BRI, it's called Interpreting Scripture, and they deal with that same question actually even more extensively. So I have that book, I'll show it to you too as well. But also they get into the Hebrew words that deal with the actual uh, literal meaning of the word day that's found in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Okay, let's go through this really rapidly, okay? Prophecy. Why does the Bible alone of all the world's holy book contain the ex such detailed and extremely accurate prophecies of future events? Some people will say, there's no need for prophecy. Well, the Bible's just full of prophecy. The Ellen White actually uses this one right here. If Revelation is a sealed book, can't be understood, why is it called Revelation? <laughs> Even if Daniel was written later, and this is, by the way, you will find this controversy to take place, not just... In, you know, outside in the world, but within even our own churches, too. If the book of Daniel was written later on, 
How does it explain how Daniel still revealed the various divided kingdoms after Rome? So they either believe he was written during 6th century BC or during the Maccabean uh, period. And so they said, well, Daniel could not have known this. It must have been written later on. But even if Daniel was written later on, he still had precision about the divided kingdoms. Do you see this? Even if men to say, well, the book of Daniel it was written later on, he still made prophecies that were uh, tied into the very end times, precise prophecies that we have seen fulfilled. Can you say amen to that? You can't get around this thing. All right, by the Bible. Someone says, well, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, let me ask you a good question. What is the criteria for a document to be historically accurate? Well, it's got to have evidences. It's got to be confirmed through uh, eyewitnesses' account. It's got to have archaeology. It's got to have support. Well, these are all things that the scripture has. Can you say amen to that? What ancient piece of literature has more manuscripts than any other work? The Bible, over 24,000 documents just for the New Testament alone. And this is what I said in the first class, that even if the entire scriptures were done away with, every single one of them was obliterated, every single Bible gone, they would still be able to reproduce the entire New Testament. How? Because of the writings of the first and second century disciples. The disciples of the disciples had written so many commentaries about the scriptures that they could reproduce the entire Bible, the New Testament, except for eight verses. What scriptures did Jesus use? Well, obviously he used the Old Testament. Well, how do you account for the vast archaeological documentation of real events, real places, and real people? This is not just like some, the epic of Gilgamesh where there's just sort of these make-believe characters up. You see real people that have been confirmed by archaeology, real events that have been confirmed. Over and over again, the Bible is an extraordinary piece of literature. All right, hellfire. Okay, very good. This is very important to deal with these questions. If God creates a new heavens and a new earth, where will be hell? Where will be hell? You know, I, had, I preached an evangelistic series two, a year and a half ago, and this man was very irate. irate. He came up to me and he says, I don't believe in this whole thing about hell, that you believe it's annihilation. I believe it's gonna, people are going to burn for all of eternity. I said, let me ask you two questions. He said, yeah. And I said, if God creates a new heavens and new earth, where will hell be? He said, okay. And then I asked him, here's the second question right here. Third one right there, excuse me. If immortality is based on the tree of life, how do the wicked burn for all of eternity? And when I asked him those two questions, I said, can you give me an answer to those two questions? I never forgot. He said, you know what? Those are very good questions I don't have the answer to. And I said, you need to think about that before you completely throw off this teaching. And he says, I will. I'll think about it. Folks, I want you to understand something. These questions are very valid. How can God pronounce no more pain, no more death if there is an eternal burning torment? And by the way, when does God pronounce no more pain, no more death? Does anybody know when? When? Revelation 21, but when? After the thousand years. After the thousand years. Why? Because there will be some sorrow in heaven when we're going over the books of the righteous and the books of the wicked, excuse me, and we realize they're not there. All right, let's keep going. If hell is real, why is it not mentioned in most leading Bible translations until Matthew? Because they know something that most people don't know. Most Bible now translations now acknowledge that the word Sheol, which is used over and over again in the Old Testament, does not actually mean a place of burning torment. It just means the grave or the place of the departed. If hell was real, and if Paul was commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the nations, why did Paul not mention hell except once to declare victory over it? And by the way, we learned this from the last session as well. Who's talking about hellfire not being uh, something that's going to be real and for all of eternity, but now is saying everyone wins at the end of time? Rob Bell. And what did we, we, what did we show? We showed an Ellen White quotation where Ellen White says that there will be another class of people who will see this revolting truth and turn to the other way and say everyone, everyone goes to heaven. Everyone goes to heaven. And by the way, you know what she says in the Book of Great Controversy? She says, there is no other teaching besides this teaching that has led more people to turn away from God than this. Do you know even Darwin said this? There's actually a famous quote where he's talking about eternal burning hellfire. And he says, I cannot believe that my friends are burning in hellfire right now for all of eternity. It led to his rejection. 
Do you see why this teaching, uh, exposing it for what it is and showing the truth of the Bible is extremely important? All right, last question. How is the concept of an eternal burning hell compatible with God's revealed justice? The law and Sabbath. Let's go here. If there is no moral law, what is the objective basis for any morality or definition of good and bad? If the moral law is the Ten Commandments, how do we uphold nine but neglect it? If there is no room for stealing, lying, committing adultery, idolatry, why is there room to alter the Sabbath? This is very important. If you say, I ask people all the time when I'm saying the Bible with them, and it kind of them to be a little reluctant towards the Sabbath, and they say, no, I believe in the keeping of the law. I said, do you believe I can steal in any, any circumstance? No. Do you believe I can have just one idol? I used to be Hindu, that's why I tell them. They said, no, not even one idol. I said, do you think it's every, ever permissible to ever steal or lie in any circumstance? Absolutely not. And I said, if we cannot alter any one of those commandments, what makes us think that we can alter the fourth one? <laughs> Why does that, wait Saturday night, I'll preach it. Okay, why does Isaiah 66 verse 23 say, we will keep the Sabbath in heaven? If the Sabbath was done away with, why did Catholic missionaries discover Sabbath-keeping churches in Africa, specifically Ethiopia, a thousand years later? They got there, and they were like, Why? Because they found this group of Ethiopians who were a thousand years untouched by Catholic influence and eventually they persecuted them. Death. If people go straight to heaven, why does Psalm 115 say that the dead do not praise God? What's the purpose of a second coming resurrection if people go straight to heaven? Does the Bible ascribe immortality to man? Is there any being inherently immortal? What was the Old, Old Testament prescription for people who talked with the dead? Does the Bible tell us to take comfort? This is very important. Does the Bible tell us to take comfort that our loved ones are in heaven? Or does the Bible tell us to take comfort that in the resurrection? Do you see the truth of this? Yes or no? Amen. Okay, very good. By the way, does anybody know who this wonderful individual is? Larry King. Larry King asked a very interesting question, and he said this. He said, if there's anybody that I could interview in this world, it'd be only one person. He said, it'd be Jesus Christ. And, ask, and I would only ask him one question. They said, what would be the question? I'd ask him if he was virgin born. And he said, if I would ask him that question, if he was to tell me yes, he said, this would answer all the other questions that we have in life. But guess what? As much as this question is important, there's another question even more important than this. You can see this question found in a painting where a little girl asked Jesus, where did you get the scars on your hand? In other words, the question of Calvary is more important than the question of Bethlehem. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this class. God, this is exciting, learning how to ask questions, the right questions to the right answers. Father, please help us to think and use our minds in engaging people and talking with people and to leading them to these deep truths that are found in your word with meekness and fear. Bless each person, Lord, as they head out. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.